And I really learned about you don't have to know everything. You just have to know people who know things and and manage the information, manage the expertise and pull it all together and deliver it on a silver platter for your client. And as long as you're that conduit and you care as much about the result as the person whose actual wallet is on the line and you're bringing all that together, they will love you forever. This is MOB, Masterminds of Business, and I'm Gerald Johnson, and this is Episode 3. Masterminds of Business is an uplifting and informative show about the accomplishments and the challenges that entrepreneurs and corporate leaders face during their careers. Our guests have mastered the four building blocks of business, processes, people, customers, and resources through hard work and perseverance. Every show will try to inspire you by introducing you to one of our masterminds or bring attention to a book, a podcast, an article that focuses on one of the four building blocks of business, giving you the courage and the knowledge to conquer the hurdles that you face in your own life and career. During today's show, we'll focus on processes with Khalil Yearwood. Khalil Yearwood attended the University of California at Berkeley, where he obtained a Bachelor's of Arts and a Juris Doctorate from Bolt Law School. Khalil is a partner at Deckard LLP, an international law firm with over 900 lawyers. He's the hiring partner for Deckard San Francisco office and manages the West Coast real estate team. His clients include Prudential, Wells Fargo, and Starwood. He was part of the team that created one of the largest real estate financial deals ever, the GE Capital Wells Fargo deal, valued at over 20 $23 billion. That's $23 billion. Khalil has received a number of awards, recognizing him as an up-and-coming lawyer, rising star from Euro Money, Legal Media Group, recommended lawyer, The Legal 500, lawyer on the fast track, The Recorder, Northern California rising star, super lawyers. I like that one, super lawyers. He was named to the prestigious 40 Under 40 by the National Bar Association. He sits on the board of directors of Bay Area's Urban Debate League. He's a member of the Commercial Real Estate Finance Council. I can't wait to speak to Khalil. And so here he is. Hello, Khalil. Welcome to MOB, Masterminds of Business. Thank you for doing the show. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to uh, have the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. Tell me, did you always know you wanted to be a lawyer? Yes and no. Um, When I was a kid, I um, always thought I was going to be a lawyer. When I was five, six, seven, you asked me I was going to be a lawyer or the president, one of those two. (laughs) Uh, President's not out yet. (laughs) Well, yeah. Maybe maybe we don't go there on uh, this this particular conversation. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I, I, I always say I was I was raised by the Socratic method. In law school, the professors they just they ask you questions. Right. They don't they don't ever they don't really teach you anything. They ask you questions. Always disagree with you. Stretch your mind. And that's what my father used to do to me as a kid. I never said anything right. He was always pushing me to really think the next level. And so I was ready. I was ready to argue. I was ready for law school. And then I got to college, and I decided, <laughs> no way do I want to go to law school. Okay, so what did you major in in college? I majored in political science. And why did you say, no way you don't want to go to law school? Because I was having too much fun not being in the classroom, too much fun <laughs> in college, hanging out with my friends, doing other things. And I started getting uh, interested in business. I thought, you know, why would, I, why would I go spend more time in school, not getting paid, not starting some business, developing something? 
I'd rather let's just get to it. Let's get let's go get a job. So what did you get? What what happened? So I got a job. I think my junior year in college, and I started working. I think it was about two thousand. So dot com days, right? Everything, right, right, everything in the coming. Bay Area. Everything's right. hot. Everybody's you know looking to raise money for for something that has dot com at the Right, end. right, right. So I go and I start working for this real estate finance company that because of the, the era then, they were really putting a dot com on it to raise money. Um, okay. But it was, a, it was a real estate finance startup with, a, with an online aspect. And I loved it. I started working there my junior year in, in college. Oh, so that got you on track? That got me on track because I, I was working there. And I remember my senior year, my boss comes to me and says, you know, you're doing a great job. And it's like, oh, that's great. And he says, we want to give you a promotion. I said, well, that's great. I'd love a promotion. He said, only one problem. We can't give a promotion to that title to somebody who doesn't have a college degree. So can you hurry up and get your degree? Okay. That sounds good. That sounds good. So that put a little pressure on you to go back to school and get things going in the right direction, huh? Yeah. And, I, you know, I was going to school the whole time, but I was sort of, I was sort of winging it. You know, I was, I was going to, into the office every day and, you know, not going to class. Not and going to class. So I, I told them, look, I can graduate in one semester, but I need to take 21 units, which is like one and a half load, but I need two days off from work every week. And they're like, okay. They went for that. They went for it. Wow. You must've been really doing a good job. (laughs) (laughs) They went for that. Yeah, they did. They did. Remember this back in the days with, you know, there's no iPhones, there's no email in the classroom kind of thing. So yeah, I put together a schedule where I, I took all my morning classes with my sister I took my middle of the day classes with my friends, and I took my night classes uh, with my then girlfriend. So all day I had I had a support system. I had yeah. people helping me out, looking out for me, and I, I knocked out those two days of classes. It was a really hard semester, and I graduated. And you graduated. Yep. So then you graduated with a degree in political science. Yep. So now you're not thinking about going back to school. No. Okay. So so tell me how did so what happened? So what goes on? Yes. Okay. So I'm working at this company. I'm, I'm I keep moving up, keep moving up. We spent about two years developing this product. We launch it. It's this great thing. I'd been involved in the capital raises. I'd been involved in developing this this product and it was great and I loved it, but I was at a plateau at the company. Okay. And so I went to my bosses and I said, so, so what's next for me here? Because the, the thing I've been doing, we, we sort of finished that. Right, right. Um, and the problem was there was a big gap between me and then the next most senior person. Okay. And so there wasn't a next step for me there. Right. And they said, well, look, you know, you can move to New York and we'll teach you how to be in sales in the real estate finance space. We'll send you down to our loan origination office and they'll teach you how to make loans. You just tell us what you want to do. And I said, well, I'm not moving. Okay. <laughs> not moving like the Bay Area. No, no, I'm not moving. So, so they said, well, you know what? You should go to graduate school. And I said, business school? And they said, yeah, either business school or law school. Why don't you go talk to some people? So I, I talked to all the guys at the company. Some of them had JDs. Some of them had MBAs you know, from all the different top schools. And I said, what, what should I do? And all the guys with MBAs, they told me, well, you know what? Go get a, go to get a law degree and focus on business and take some business classes too and really go learn the law because we wish we knew that stuff better. You know, that, uh-huh. That's the thing we feel we're missing. And the lawyers said, uh, you know, either one, do law school or business school. So I, I took the the net, net advice, right? right? right and I was right, like, right. okay, so I'm going to go to law school. So I applied to law school. And within a year, I quit that job. And I'd gone with, you know, with their blessing, absolutely. You know, they said, you know, you know go go get the law degree. Maybe go practice if you want and come talk to us. And if, you know, we're still around and you're still interested, love to have you back. But, you know, then you can sort of be taking that next step. Right. Um, so I, I went to law school. And I'm so glad I didn't go straight from college because I went to law school with a purpose. I went knowing what I was going to do. What I, you wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to do. And I highly recommend that nobody go to law school because 
your mom told you, because your dad told you, because you think you have to be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, or you're not going to be successful. You go with eyes open. Do not show up day one of law school unless you know what you're going to do day one after law school. All right. All right. That's good advice. That's good advice. So I'm just going to assume you graduated law school. <laughs> I did. And, I, I, and you did all right on that LSAT to get into law school. Yep. And, and you graduated. What brought you to Deckard? And that's an interesting story. So I'm interested. I already have a little bit of a taste for real estate finance, right? I knew I enjoyed that. I really loved doing deals. And Deckert was one of our lawyers at the company that I worked at. So I'd worked with Deckert lawyers when I was in college. You know, okay. um, They were our lawyers for capital raises, for some intellectual property issues, for some employment law issues, all kinds of different stuff. So I, I, I knew they were good people. I knew what their culture was like. So I'm in law school, and the way it works is you do a summer job to sort of uh, intern. So it's really a, a summer-long interview process right, where right. they're learning about you, and you're learning a little bit about them, but it can be pretty stressful. But anyway, so my former boss from the company, uh, he's now actually gone and opened Decker San Francisco office. And so, so your former boss, hold on, let's get this out. Let's get this out. So your former boss, who used to work at the same company yep. that you started at, yep. now goes and works for Decker. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Yep. So he 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 goes and um open and starts Deckard's San Francisco office. Okay. And starts building that practice. He actually started doing that right around when I started law school. Wow. So I, I call him and I'm like, okay, so I'm I'm ready to do my summer internship. I'm trying to think about what to do. And he says, Well, look, you know, you've worked for me for a long time. I know I know what you can do. You know what I do. You know whether or not you want to work for me. So why don't you go do an internship somewhere else? Oh. Yeah. So he he said, go see what the world's yeah, like. Yeah. Did yeah. you do that? I did. Okay. I did. I went in. It, it was it was a lot easier for me than for the, some of my classmates because, you know, they had to, they, did, they didn't know they had a sure thing. So I had to go interview with lots of different places. Right, I, right. I interviewed with, you know, 10 firms, which is a relatively small number. Ended up doing a summer internship at another firm for most of the summer. And then I went to Decker and I said, okay, well, I'm going to do the other firm like you suggested for most of the summer. And then can I come to Decker for the last couple of weeks just to sort of see see what's what? And they said, yeah, no, no problem. But, you know, the, the way these summer things work, it's a lot of parties and baseball games and lots <laughs> of fun and take you out to lunch and all that kind of fancy lunch in San Francisco. It's a lot of fun. And they said to me, look. We're small because back then Decker San Francisco right, was, was new and just you know just a, just maybe five six lawyers, um, and they said you can come here and we'll pay for your lunch, but nobody's taking you out to lunch. We're going to put you to work because we know you can do the work, right. so we're going to throw you right in. And I loved it. And so wow, so now you're at Decker. What was your first client? What was the first thing you did there? So the the, the first deal I worked on, um, it was interesting. Uh, it was this big M and A deal where our client was buying this public company, taking them, taking them private. And it was, I cannot ex express how formative it was for me. It was this really big transaction that I worked with lawyers in 10 different Deckard offices across 10 different practice groups, tax, corporate, real estate, healthcare, everything. And as a young person, first couple months in, I got to meet people all across the firm and you know, the, the best bonds are built in the trenches, right? Right. I was in the trenches with people all over the firm. And to this day, there's people I can call up and ask for a favor because of that first deal. Because, you know, they knew me. They knew how I was working. They got to respect me. I got to respect them. We got to like each other. So that was part of what was wonderful about that deal. The second piece that was really great about that deal I had no idea what I was doing. This was like, okay. <laughs> so it's really great when you don't know what you're doing. No, yeah, yeah. Well, it was an M and A deal, and my boss was not an M and A lawyer. He was a real estate finance lawyer, and 
I watched him and worked with him, and we just figured it out. And you know, Decker's a global law firm, experts in everything. And I really learned about you don't have to know everything. You just have to know people who know things That's and, right. and manage the information, manage the expertise and pull it all together and deliver it on a silver platter for your client. And as long as you're that conduit and you care as much about the result as the person whose actual wallet is on the line and you're bringing all that together, they will love you forever. And so- Wait, wait, wait. wait. I just want to repeat two things that you just said. The first one is you don't have to know everything. As long as you're willing and able to bring information through you to someone else, that is a key point. And the second one, as long as you care about it as much as the person whose wallet is on the line. You know, I did a show previously about trust and we talked about caring. And that is specifically what that's all about. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I wanted Please. to get get yeah. that thought crystallized. Make yep. sure we say that. It's yeah. really important. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And so then the, the last point I was going to make on that was me seeing this great transaction unfold and us get a great result for our client without having the deal leaders, me and, and my boss, having actual expertise in the area. It taught me I could do anything. I, I, nothing has scared me since. Nothing has scared you nope. since. Because no, nothing could be scarier than, than that deal and that role. And if we knocked it out of the park on that. You could knock it out of the park on anything. Yep. We've been listening to Khalil Yearwood tell us about his journey to becoming a lawyer and how he ended up at Deckard LLP. Hopefully you learned something from his life lessons. Stay with us. This is MOB, Masterminds of Business, and I'm Gerald Johnson. This is episode three. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, write a review, or visit us at sabacon.net forward slash MOB. Don't know how to spell Sabacon? It's S-A-B-A-C-O-N. Couple of quick programming notes. If you have an inspiring story to tell or a question you want to ask, please reach out to us at sabacon.net forward slash MOB. We'd love to hear from you. Coming up, how new government regulations led to Khalil working on one of the largest real estate financial deals ever, the $23 billion GE Capital Wells Fargo deal. How did that deal come about? Give me a little bit of let me, let me give you a little bit of the background, because really, it starts with uh, Dodd-Frank regulation that we've been Dodd hearing. Dodd-Frank. So, yes, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Talk about it. So with the, the whole economic collapse that happened um, you know, several years ago, one of the things that came out of that was the concern that financial institutions are too big to fail. Too right? big to fail and, and unregulated it, enough. Uh, right, right. <laughs> so they passed all these rules, and one of the things they did is they designated uh, certain large institutions as um, systemically significant, and they, they used the term SIFI. Okay, so they tagged a bunch of banks, a few insurance companies, and one non-financial institution as SIFIs. The one non-financial institution that got tagged as a SIFI, GE. Capital. Yep. (laughs) So GE, which everybody, right? There's nobody who doesn't interact with GE, right? It's either your your washing machine or your refrigerator or your... Car loans. Everything, right? What people don't know is that GE, well, you knew because you just said car loans, but GE was one of the biggest lenders on the planet, okay? So it was this huge industrial company with this banking component, and the regulators were smart enough to see that, and they said, we don't care that you make refrigerators and washing machines. You also lend more, I think, I forget the exact numbers, but by by, um, banking assets at their peak, they would be one of the top 10 banks in the country. 
right? And they're not a bank. Wow. Okay. So what happens? So they pass all these regulations and GE gets tagged as a SIFI. And what does that mean? It means they get heavily regulated like a bank. And so you're the CEO of GE. What are you thinking? Boy, I've got this great banking business, but I also make washers and dryers and refrigerators. Time to get to my core business. Time to get to my core business. Right. Split it out. Okay. So they start working on this plan to divest their banking business. And they decide that the way that they're going to announce that to the world is with this big announcement that they're divesting their commercial mortgage book, all their commercial real estate loans. And they were one of the biggest players in the market. They had um, 20 plus billion, 24 billion is what this deal ended up being, but they had 20 plus, even more than that different commercial real estate investments. And so what their first big splash was to, to announce this. Okay. And so they went to two of the big players in the market. They went to Blackstone and they went to Wells Fargo and they said, do you guys want to do this deal with us where you take all of this? Because for lots of different strategic reasons, right? If you just sell one loan at a right. time, it gets out into the market, your people start quitting, right? I mean, you're, you're right. winding down a business, you, you, your, your people yeah. don't, don't, don't function as well, right. right? So they wanted to make a big splash and just Boom, get, it, get rid of it, all of it at once. And you need a, a buyer with really deep pockets to do that. Right. So, so how, did, how did it get to Deckard? How did, how did that get from them wanting to do this all the way to Deckard? Yep. So we have a, a long, long history, long relationship with, with Wells Fargo, in particular with their uh, real estate banking group. And over the years, I've worked on several transactions for them where they are buying big pools of commercial mortgage loans. Before the GE deal, the most recent one before that was a deal with uh, ING. It's okay. a big European uh, financial institution. And it actually, a lot of most of the deals were European financial institutions because, again, because of the economic collapse and regulation, right? If you're in Europe and you're a European regulator regulating a Dutch bank or a, uh, or a German bank, and you say, you know, why do you have this big U.S. real estate lending business? You know, you're supposed to be a Dutch bank. You're supposed to be a German bank. W- why is it I look at your balance sheet and I see all these U.S. commercial mortgage right, loans? Right. And so the regulators tell them, you need, to, you need to get rid of that business. So ING says, to, says, I need to sell this billion, I think it was a billion five of loans. Right. And Wells Fargo says, well, you know. We'll take it. We'll take it. All right. We'll take it. So I had a history with representing them and buying these pools of loans. This was the biggest one, but, you know, I had a history with them. So, so I'm fast forwarding. You're in the deal. What were some, every deal has some hiccups. What were some of the hiccups and how did you overcome those hiccups? So we had, it was, it was a very interesting deal. And remember, it's, they have this timeline where we can't work on this deal forever before it gets announced because it's going to leak. Right. So it is by necessity super fast paced. That I forget how many weeks it was. I want to say it you was said like weeks. weeks. That's the that's the key word. Weeks. Weeks. Right. Weeks. That is the, that you, the key you, word is weeks. Right. From the time that people got started working on it to the time that purchase agreement got signed up, I want to. It was. It was at most three weeks. It was somewhere between two and three weeks. So two it's super fast-paced, and we've got multiple teams going. We have a team. Uh, the, the head of our uh, real estate practice group was, was, was the man in New York in the room negotiating. It was the kind of thing where there's no negotiating with you know trading documents back and forth. It's let's get in a room. So we had the head of our team in New York in the room negotiating. I stayed back in San Francisco, and I was running a team of lawyers who were all figuring out
about like what is this nine billion dollars worth of stuff? What is it? What so is you're, it? you're breaking it down. You're categorizing it. You're saying how much it is, how much is outstanding on each loan. What, right. What's the security risk on each 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 piece of this? You're breaking that whole piece down. You exactly. and your team. Okay. Exactly. So that's what you're doing. What were some of the processes you put in place to make sure you didn't miss or miscategorize yep. Yep. what was so, going on? So the challenge was really the volume of information that we had to get through. You know, you've got the loan documents for $9 billion worth of loans. And we were getting it from multiple sources, which could be really tricky. They had this online data room set up. Right. Um, but then there was also this uh, vault, as it were, it was a, a warehouse vault of the original documents <laughs> in Texas. Oh, my God. And the time when this was happening, this was um, th- there was there was some natural disasters happening in that part of the country. Oh, my goodness. Okay. We had people traveling in from Philadelphia, from New York, who were – it was taking them days just to get to Texas because of the natural disasters. We were putting people on planes going from different parts of the country to try to make sure that at least some of them got there. Can you imagine you're doing this deal and you're sending extra people because you don't know where the weather's going to be? Wow. <laughs> so it sounds like you put a process in place to have a like a, a fail-safe mechanism Absolutely. to make sure that if the first person didn't get there, yep. the second one would because you had such a, t- a short time frame. That's right. Because look, when you're talking about $9 billion and you've got you know the bosses at Wells Fargo saying, okay, Deckert, are we good to go? Right. You, you can't say... Sorry, my guy missed his flight. So you just asked a key question. The bosses at Wells Fargo saying, okay, Deckard, are we good to go? Did you have processes in place to make sure that what they were doing was accurate, even though you trusted those lawyers? Yeah, so we had we had a whole system in place. So we had a standardized questionnaire um, ah. that, was, that was used that each lawyer would re- use to review the loan file and answer questions, okay. flagging hot buttons, okay? That would... that. 15-page document or so would then come to my, to my desk. I would look at it. I would call that person. I would ask them questions. We'd refine it. We'd send that off to Wells Fargo. Then we would take that, and we would roll that up into even a more condensed version, and we call that the red flag report. And ah. that was our, our rolling list of here's the here's the real hot, hot buttons, stuff. To, hot stuff to really stay on top of. And then somebody after that would go item after item, making sure every one of those red flags were cleaned up. Yep. What other things do you think you learned from doing that? deal as uh, you know such a high profile deal that you worked on well you know the the interesting thing with the high profile deals is it, it, you you have the time crunch aspect of it but you really just you, you can't get scared by the numbers yeah it was nine billion but would I've done anything differently if it had been a million? Well, you know. <laughs> I wish you could see his face. He's like, oh, a million dollars. Oh, my God. What would I do with a million dollars? Look, you're doing a smaller deal, and you still, like, a small deal might, you know, call it a $90 million deal. Oh, right? yeah. Okay. Just call it a $90 million deal. Or a $9 million deal. That's still, if somebody is, their business is doing $9 million deals, that's really meaningful to them. That's right. And, you know, a $9 million mistake that's not going to put Wells Fargo under. But my clients who do $9 million deals, they care about that in the same way that Wells Fargo cares about a $9 billion deal. Exactly. So you can't really, you, you don't care more. You don't try harder. You don't do a better job on the $9 billion versus the $9 million because it's all a, a magnitude issue, right? So it still requires Key the points. same amount of focus, the same amount of attention, the same amount of care and desire. And if you don't have that, you won't have the client service mentality that's going to make you successful. Very key points. It's that it's that if you do well with small things, you'll do well with big things. And that is very, very key about doing uh, having the same standards for your small clients as well as your large clients. 
Khalil Yearwood just reveals some of the processes he used to ensure he met his clients' due diligence needs. Having backup plans, setting red flags for problems were all necessary to get the job done. You've been listening to MOB, Masterminds of Business, and I'm Gerald Johnson. I know you like what you hear, so go to iTunes right now and subscribe. Then go visit us at sabacon.net forward slash MOB. No, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Finish listening to the rest of the show where Khalil tells us about his negotiating styles. Then go subscribe. Up next, Negotiation with Khalil Yearwood. How are you with negotiating? So negotiation all comes down from my perspective. It's really an information management. It's really an information management skill at the, at the outset. The most important thing is you have to understand your client's objectives the other side's objectives, and let's break that down. When I say my client's objectives, if I'm doing a deal for, well, we'll just keep using Wells Fargo as an example. Okay. Okay. I need to understand what does the bank care about, but I also need to understand the human being who's on the other side of the phone that I'm talking to, what are their objectives? Is this somebody who is a nine to five person who's just trying to make sure that they don't lose money? Is this somebody who's an up and comer who's trying to really knock it out of the park and make a name for themselves on this deal? And so you need to understand the dynamic, the the human dynamic of Mm. the individual, but you also have to understand the bank and their business and how they make money and things they care about and don't care about. Well, I would stop you right there because you talked about the human dynamic. So Mm. many people don't even worry about the human dynamic what the person's motives are yep. that, that's actually behind the deal. Go, Keep going, keep okay. going. Yep, you, you, that's a key part of negotiation. So that's, that's a f- step one is understanding your own client, okay? Step two is do the same thing for the other side, okay? okay? So you need to understand their business, how they make money, what they care about and don't care about. And then you're going to try to understand the human dynamics of the key business person on the other side as well as of the lawyer that you're negotiating with on the other side because on a surface level is one lawyer negotiating with another. But if I'm working on a deal and on every conference call, I can tell that the business person on the other side is a nice person, a good person, really just trying to get to a deal and the lawyer is a jerk and difficult, I won't even talk to them. You try to get to the business person. I just talk straight to the business person. We're all on the call together, and on a surface level, I'm negotiating with the other lawyer because you know it's sort of improper to go directly to the business person. I can't call them directly, but if we're all on the phone together, I'm not even talking to that lawyer. You just talk to the business person. I'm just talking to the business so, person. So one of your tactics is to avoid or to try to find the least the area of least resistance. That's right. You're trying to find who's the so if the lawyer is the area of least resistance, you're going to talk to the right. lawyer. That's if right. The business person's the the area of least resistance. You're going you're like water. You just flow. That's right. I'm, I'm like water. You're like water. I'm like hot water. My like hot boiling water. Hot, I didn't know if you were hot boiling. I was just thinking you may be like cold water, but cool water. But yeah. okay, I got you. Yeah. I got you. Okay, so what kind? What kind of different styles of negotiations do you use? Well, so there's a couple of different things to think about. So once you have the information about the human beings, then having all the information about the deal. So I, you got to be real. You have to be smarter than everybody else on the details. You have to know. What is the, what is it, like if you're doing a real estate deal, you have to know all about the property. I want to know the property as well as the property owner. I want to know the financial terms of the documents. I want to know the ins and outs. I want to know the law. Okay. The law is actually important. It's not that important, but it's important. I want to know the law. And then I'm going to go in and I'm going to figure out, well, what does my client need? 
And then it's then it's then you get into the fun part. Then you get to the strategy. Okay. okay. So if you have a dynamic where you have people who are you know being friendly on both sides, well, then you have an incentive to talk first, right? Because people don't want to be seen as overly negotiating. So if I put out a reasonable proposal that is you know on the my client's side of things, but just a hair, but just okay? a hair, okay. The other side is going to be hard pressed to say no and then ask for something slightly to the other side, right? Because we've established this dynamic of everybody's being reasonable. So right. in that type of deal, you want to talk first. Okay. So in a deal where everybody's being reasonable, you want to go first. You want to put your offer out on the table first. Yep. Okay. Yep. Go ahead. Yep. You want to make because you and you want to do it in a way where you are putting out issues that are important to them and important to you. Win-win. A win-win. A win-win solution. Right. A win-win solution. So okay. that you're saying, here's my package proposal, and you're getting the thing you really care about, and you're going to go even you know, even more your side friendly on that stuff. And then you're going to give them what they need. You know, you don't give them too much, but you're going to give them definitely what you, what they need. And the key is you got it. You want to make it so that the other side lawyer can't say, oh, look, this is ridiculous. We couldn't possibly accept that. So you put out a reasonable offer. It's a little bit tilted to your side because yep. that's what you do. You got to try, you right. got to push the needle, but, but it's not outrageous. It's right. not outlandish. It's not something that's going to get thrown in your face. Right. Right. So now if you got the opposite, right, you got a deal where the other side is very difficult you know, I, I, was, I was working on a deal just two days ago, and we're negotiating some points. And we're going through the list of open issues with the client. And they say, oh, yeah, I can give on that. I can give on that. And I tell them, okay, well, that's just between you and us. I'm going to keep that in my pocket. I need to trade that later. And I told the other side, no way. We absolutely cannot give that point. You can't give it. Can't, no, can't, not, no, can't give that. You know? <laughs> so so they, were, they were being difficult, this client. Yep. Being, so did you make them? No, not the client. The other side was being difficult. The other, right? the other yep. side. Yep. So did you make them make their offer first? How did you get them to, to go first? Yeah, so what I did is, you, you well, and sometimes you get them to go first by you going first, but by putting so much on the table that it's really not real, right? So I went to them and said, here's the 20 open points. For me, I knew there were really only three or five, but I'm going to put 20 and by them responding and I'm going to see what they, they're willing to drop off the list. Maybe the three to five things I really care about, they, they go away because they say, well, I really need these and we'll give you these. And maybe we get to a point where all of this left is stuff I don't even care about. So you basically you put this big old buffet in front of them where you're like letting everything out there. And that's kind of a ruse, to, so to speak. So you, can, so you can see where they are. So they're like sifting through all of this right. stuff and they're answering all these questions. So you can find out where they really are in the right. deal, what's really motivating them. And, and then you might find out that the stuff that's really motivating you, they already gave that to you. You didn't even know it. Exactly. So you told me about, let me just recap for a second. So you told me about when things are friendly mm -hmm. uh, between you and the opposite side, you kind of want to go first. Mm -hmm. And when things aren't so friendly between you and the opposite side, one of the tactics that you might use is to put out a whole bunch of things that are still outstanding for you in the deal to see where they are. It's kind of like feel them out. Is that is that That's a right. good way to yep. say it? Yep. All right. So what other what other styles of negotiation might you use? Well, so uh, other styles might be if you have a um, an important tactic is to think about who you want on the phone. You who know? you want on the phone? Who you want on the phone? Like, do I want my key decision maker on the phone? Because the problem is you get your key decision maker on the phone and. You don't have somebody to say, well, I got to go check with X. 
Okay. You know? So on certain deals, I don't want that person on the phone. I tell them, no, you, I, I need you not to get on the phone. Sound call. like a car dealer. I got to go check with my general manager right now. I'll go back. That's absolutely right. <laughs> That's absolutely right. That, so sometimes I need to hold that in my pocket. But the flip side is, do I want their Mr. X on the phone? Yeah. Okay? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends on leverage. I was working on a deal we closed last week where we never wanted – it was the, the president of the company on the other side would actually get on the phone. And when he got on the phone, everybody got all scared because it's like, ah, oh, you know, we don't want to piss this guy off and we want future business from him. And he made it so that his guys couldn't be as reasonable because if he said, I cannot live with this, and everybody on the phone knew he could, but he was saying that right. maybe because he wasn't as informed, right? right because right, right, he's right, not, right. he's the president of the company. He's doing a lot of other stuff. He's not in the weeds on our deal. So it was bad to have him on the, on the phone because he would make statements that made it harder for them to walk back. I've been in that situation before way back when I remember my boss would be in the room and I had a, a client and I was negotiating with him and me and the client were like so eye to eye, but the boss was messing it up. And I knew that this was the best deal for the company, but the boss, sometimes you got to get rid of the obstacle in the room. And that's a responsibility of both parties. It's not just, let's say, your responsibility or my responsibility. It's the, the lead negotiators on both sides right. have to manage their side right. uh, if they're good at what they do. Right. And, and some people do that in good faith and some people don't. And you have to like, <laughs> and that's why you use the first couple call, calls in the negotiation to feel that out. Are you going to work in good faith or are you going to let your guy, you know, throw hand grenades? You know, because I, I want to know how that's going to work because then I know if your guy's getting on the phone and every time their guy, we knew their guy was on the phone, we made that call go super fast. You know, well, we'd say, okay, we can talk about this, but we're not ready to talk about that other stuff. And then we'd wait until he, we had a conference call where he wasn't on to get to that other stuff. Wow, that segment was packed full of information. You've been listening to MOB, Masterminds of Business, Episode 3. I'm Gerald Johnson, and if you want to get in touch with us here at MOB, you can reach us at sabacon.net forward slash MOB or at Sabacon Ideas. That's S-A-B-A-C-O-N-I-D-E-A-S on Twitter and Facebook. Now let's get back to Khalil. I got to ask you this question. What if you went back in time? What would you say to yourself uh, to make yourself a better person, to make yourself a better negotiator, to make yourself a better lawyer? What, what advice would you have given yourself? What, how would you handle that? What would you say? I guess the one fundamental thing I would tell people and I would, I would go back and tell myself, if you're not enjoying it, you're never going to be the best. You can wow. be good. You can be successful at something you hate. You're never going to be the top unless it's something you love. So keep that keep that eye on it. And it's never too late to switch gears and to fine-tune and to take some chances. Well, here's what's on the top of my mind after speaking to Khalil today. First, you don't have to know everything. Find someone who knows what you need to know and then be a conduit of information. Second, Care as much about the work that you do as the person whose money is on the line, whose job is on the line, whose livelihood is on the line. Third, have backup plans, like when Khalil said two teams of lawyers, just in case the weather stopped one team of lawyers from reaching their destination. Fourth, red flag problems, and then follow up to make sure those problems have been resolved. Don't let things slip through the cracks. Fifth, 
Managing small projects and deals well will ensure you can manage large projects and deals well. People get caught up in wanting to work on big projects and big deals without learning how to master the small projects and small deals. Remember, this is all just a matter of magnitude. Well, that's it for today. I want to thank Khalil Yearwood for taking the time to speak with me. And as always, I want to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Frank Sterling. If you want to get in touch with us here at MOB, you can reach us at sabacon.net forward slash MOB or at Sabacon Ideas on Twitter and on Facebook. That's S-A-B-A-C-O-N-I-D-E-A-S. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please write a review. Remember, until next time, nothing happens unless you make it happen.